This morning we have um, put, put together two passages. We're, we are working our way through Mark. And we'll get to the resurrection passages by tomorrow, or by next Sunday. Um, today we're going to cover a lot of ground, but the two main passages, one is going backwards to Mark 10, and then the other is from Mark 14. They're, they're, they're combined by a, 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 a thematic thing that, that holds them together that I think you'll see um, as we go through them. So from Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom, for whom it has been prepared. Then jumping to Mark 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God for his people this morning. So I want to talk, start today by talking about the tough actor of the 1970s. This is more for the benefit of the younger people who may not be as familiar with him, but Clint Eastwood uh, was, was the, the tough guy actor in his day. He, he did a lot of westerns, and that's where he made his mark, but then later in the 70s, he became Dirty Harry, the the the, the cop who deals out justice to the bad guys. And all the movies had, were very similar in that somehow it would be Clint Eastwood alone facing off against all the bad guys and dealing out justice upon them. And you can sort of count on him doing that. Well, in 2008, he, he did a different movie, um, Grand Torino. By this time, he's an old man, right? 
In 2008, he's an old man, but he's still just as tough as ever. He plays Walt Kowalski, a Korean veteran, living in a city that is being overfilled by immigrants. And he has some um, negative views towards his, his, the immigrants that are moving into his community especially because he, he remembers his Korean War days. And uh, so I'll, I'll warn you, I, I normally don't um, recommend our movies, and this is definitely an R movie, but mostly because of the language that, that gets used throughout it. But what's interesting is that a family from Vietnam moves in next door, and at first he, he's really frustrated and angry at them, but slowly he becomes friends with Tao a Vietnamese immigrant that, that lives next door. They're, they're, they're from Vietnam, but they're Hmong. Um, and he gets to know them and starts to befriend them. And then he sees the situation they face with the local gangs, the, the, the Vietnamese gangs. And he begins to kind of help them. And, and just because of who he is, he's, he's not afraid of anyone. And so he ends up standing up to the, to the gangs that's going on, and, and at one point, they, the gangs mistreat, they beat up Tao, and they severely beat up and mistreat Tao's sister. And you know, you can see it in Clint Eastwood's eyes. This is it, right? This is that time where he shifts into, now he will go deal justice upon the bad guys, like he's always done in all his movies. And you, you get ready for that moment, and he, he says, you know, he's coming up with a plan, and then all of a sudden, he sends Tao to the basement, and he locks him in. Because whatever Clint Eastwood does, he does alone, right? So he's going to face up to the gangs, and he goes to their, their house, where the, the gang house, where they do all their drugs and all that stuff, and they're all, you know, they all have their guns, and he goes out there, and he starts taunting them, and he, he takes his finger, and he points it at each one of them. And he draws them all out. And so they all have their guns trained on him. And it's like, and you're watching thinking, what's he going to do? How could he ever overcome so many gang men? There's no way. And, and you, but you know, he's got to have some solution, some great plan. He always does. And then he says, do you have a light? And he has a cigarette in his mouth. And they're all like, what are you talking about, old man? And they're yelling at him. The whole neighborhood's awake. Everyone can see what's going on. And they all are watching to see what will happen. And, and they all have their guns trained on him. And he puts his hand inside his coat, coat jacket. Does anyone have a light? And then he whips it out. And they just unload. And 20 guns shoot him dead instantly. And falls to the ground. And you're stunned. What just happened? How is that a victory? And then his hand falls open and it's not a gun in his hand. It's just a lighter. And then slowly they reveal as Tao comes to see that um, because there were so many witnesses to the shooting and normally no one would testify against the gang, but since everyone could see what happened and he, he was unarmed, he wasn't on their property. He was on the sidewalk. That this time the whole gang would be put in, would face justice finally. You see, the only way 
he could save Tao and his sisters from the, the violence of that gang was to allow himself to be killed so that they would finally face justice. On Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the king and Messiah. He came riding on a donkey so that all would know who he was. And the people cheered and Hosanna, which means save us. And blessed is the son of David, which is a messianic title. The crowds were, were cheering him as if he was a victorious ruler. That's why they waved palms, right? They, they knew he must have some plan. Some plan that would overthrow the, the corrupt temple authorities. Some plan that would get rid of the leaders who had led them astray. Some plan that would overthrow the Romans and the enemies that were oppressing the Jewish people. Some plan to bring victory for, for God's people. They assumed, he, he must have figured out, that he would, he would use his popularity and his spiritual power. His disciples especially, they'd seen him do miracles, calming storms and healing people and even raising the dead. Of course, he could, do, he could use all that to, to accomplish this great victory. And then... They, you know, as disciples, they, you know, they knew Jesus, you know, if he, he's going to be king, he would need his officers and advisors, you know, and they assumed that they would get to be the ones who stood beside him in, in his victory, in his glory, when his kingdom happened. And so James and John, though, wanted to make sure that among the disciples, they were kind of at the top of that, Right? So they go to Jesus with a bold request. They say, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. And he says, well, tell me what? He says, we want to be at your right and at your left when you come into your glory. You know, he'd let Jesus decide which between the two of them would be his top two, two advisors. And Jesus looks at them and says, you do not know what you are asking. You there will be someone at my right and at my left when I am raised up for all to see in my glory. And there will be someone right there beside me. But that's for the Father to decide who that is. So James and John, it's, it's a bold move, what they're asking. And, you know, but doesn't the world teach that it's the bold, the assertive that, that, that rise to the top? The other disciples are pretty ticked off only because they didn't get there first. But as Jesus tries to explain that they don't know what they're asking for, he says, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with, with my baptism? And they say, of course we can. You know, what, what, what are they thinking though? They're, they're picturing a different cup. They're picturing the cup of blessing. Right? They would have read Psalm 23, maybe you know it as well, where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, right? They were picturing a victory feast. Yes, Jesus, we could drink, you know, we'll be with you at that victory feast, and you know, we're ready for that cup, the cup of blessing. They were thinking of baptism purely in terms of some kind of ritual of consecration, Yes, Jesus, of course, if we need to have you baptize us in some special way, you know, that that, that would mark us as, as your holy ones. We could do that. 
they, they assume Jesus is going to use his righteous power and popularity to bring in the victory, that he has some secret plan like Clint Eastwood always does to bring it about. But Jesus has a different plan. And so he, the cup he's talking about and the baptism is different. That different cup, I call it the bitter cup, is talked about at different places in the Old Testament. So from Job 21, it, it says this. It says, let his own eyes see his destruction. It's talking about a sinful man. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Let him drink of the wrath, the God's wrath and anger up, that would be drunk by, by someone. Then in Psalm 75, it, it adds to that image. Talks about it as God who is the judge. He brings one down and exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it all out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. So the cup of God's wrath and anger at sin and wickedness. It's a, it's a visual illustration of what it would be to, to, to pour out God's anger upon people who've done wrong. Now why though, that's not how we think about God. Of God is angry and full of wrath. How can that be? So I was watching another movie. Um, we watch a lot of movies, I guess. Uh, and it was uh, The Free State of Jones. And it's, a, it's an interesting movie. At one point, there's, um, it's after the Civil War, and there's an African-American man who they're, they're trying to get the right to vote, but the Southern society won't let them. And they're, you know, trying to keep them down and keep them actually almost like slaves, even though they're technically freed. And at, at one point, they lynch one of the, the, the black men who's fighting for the right to vote. And I just, I got caught up in that movie. I, I, maybe you've had this experience where you're so identified with, with them. And, and in that moment, if I could have burned that whole town to the ground, right? I, that's what you want. You ever feel that sense of, that, that wrongness of injustice? You, you want to see things set right. That's us watching a movie. Imagine God who sees every act of evil and injustice there is in the world. Who sees every act of child abuse. He sees every time someone uses their disabled relative and keeps them in bondage so that they could collect their social security checks. They see every senior ripped off in some scam. They, they, they see every bit of petty harassment at work, all the way up to every murder that takes place. How could God not be full of wrath at all the wickedness that takes place in this world? What's God to do? What if he poured out the wrath on those who deserve it? Well, I have a feeling that wrath would end up falling upon all of us. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see, it's not just the evil and wickedness out there that will face God's wrath. 
It's the stuff in our hearts and lives. We're a part of the problem. The injustice and evil in this world is systemic, and we've been caught up in it. And so if God really did pour out his wrath, none of us could survive drinking it. That's the cup that Jesus would drink on our behalf. That's the bitter cup he was referring to. What about the baptism? The core meaning of the word baptism is to fully immerse in water, to to dunk in effect. That's why we call it baptism. And, And what Jesus was saying is that he would be immersed into suffering. That his whole person would be dunked into, immersed into complete suffering. And, and Jesus, who was fully God, but also fully human, dreaded it. And so the night before the cross, he got with his disciples and he prayed. And he did not want to be alone and he, he pleaded with his disciples, stay awake with me, pray with me, but they couldn't. They kept falling asleep on him. And in the end, it was Jesus alone with the Father saying, Father, if it is possible, would you take this cup from my hand? See, he knew what was coming. He knew that for him to drink the cup would mean to be baptized into suffering. And he, Father, Is there any way you can take this cup from me? Three times he made the request of his father. But then he said, but not my will, but thine be done. Because the father said there is no other way. There is no other way for the salvation of people than for the cup to be drunk. And so Jesus said, okay, not my will. Yours be done. And in that moment, he said, the hour has come. Here comes my betrayer. And so it began. He was arrested. He was dragged before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, in the middle of the night and put through a sham of a trial where they they brought up all kinds of witnesses. And in the entire time, Jesus said he stood silent, giving no reply to all the, the false things he was accused of. It's only when the trial was falling apart and the chief priest who got nervous he, he might not get a conviction just faced up to Jesus and says, tell us the truth. Are you the Christ or not? Are you the son of the living God? Now Jesus could have remained silent and maybe nothing would have happened. But then he spoke up and said, yes, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of of the God of power. And they said, blasphemy. How can a a human being be the son of God? And so they beat him. They, They spit upon him. They gave him over to the Romans, who continued to mock and beat him as the king of the Jews. And then he stood before the Roman governor, who had the power to free him, but instead gave in to the demands of the crowd and had him sent over to be crucified. First, he was flogged. He was stretched out 
for all to see. And then they took a whip and slashed his back 39 times, ripping off skin with each whip. His whole body was immersed, racked in suffering. They took a crown of thorns and pressed it down upon his head so that blood would be dripping down his face the entire time. They forced him to use what little strength he had left to carry his cross all the way out out of the city. But his strength failed because of the severe beatings he had already received, and so they had to draft a man from Africa to to finish the deal. Then when they got there, they stretched him out, arms wide, and they they sunk in spikes in each wrist. And then they crossed his feet and put another long spike to nail him to the cross. And as the cross was raised up and set in its place, it would have pulled all his bones out of joint. Every part of his body was immersed into suffering. And yet there was more. There was an unseen suffering we could not comprehend. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, had been in perfect union with God the Father since all eternity. And in that moment, as he was bearing the wrath of God, as it was being poured out upon him, he himself had become come in place of sinful man on that cross. God the Father had to abandon his Son and leave him to face this alone. And Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And there was darkness as a representation of that that inner abandonment. And then it was over. Jesus called out in a loud spirit, Father, I commit my hand, my spirit into your hands. And he died. His followers took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But no one could see that a great victory had been won. That, that what Jesus had done would fundamentally change everything. And so it would take later people in the Bible, theologians, who would start to explain it. Paul would would write, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Or Peter, one of those disciples who were with him, he said, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You see, what Jesus was doing He was bearing the wrath, drinking the cup of God's wrath to save us from it. There's two fancy theological words that I think capture what this was about. And so one of them is expiation. And that simply means he bore the wrath on our behalf. There's a little rhythm to that, right? You can make that into a chant. He bore the wrath on our behalf. So instead of pouring out his anger at the injustice and evil of this world upon a world who could not endure it, it all came upon Jesus. He became sin on, in our place. 
And then the second theological word is propitiation. Because of the expiation of Jesus, propitiation, it is, it is, it is fundamentally changed God's attitude toward us. So God's anger is turned away from us because it had come upon Jesus on the cross. And so Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Later in Romans, it talks about how God is for us, not against us. Because our sins have been dealt with on that cross. One of the questions that, that people ask, and it's a fair question, why was this really necessary? I mean, couldn't, you know, is God always just so angry? Couldn't God have just chosen to forgive our sins and just say, I, I just won't count it against you? Why couldn't God have just forgiven it anyways without anyone having to die? Let me offer an illustration. Suppose someone does you wrong by burning down your house. You're fine, but your house and all your possessions are gone. And then they find out who the guilty party was, who the arsonist was. And he's brought up on trial before the judge. And so there you are. There's, there's, the, there's the, the judge. And, but when the, the arsonist tells his story about how all the hard things he's gone through in life, and how he got to that place and how he feels so bad and will never do it again, the judge decides to have compassion on him and says, I, I see your, your, your change of heart, so I will not, no longer, um, we, we, don't, we won't punish you anymore. How would you feel? I mean, you lost your house. You lost everything you own. So you, you're, out, you're out of all your possessions, in effect, the cost for their forgiveness was paid by you. How is that good? How, how could that be a righteous judge who would do that? But what if instead the judge said, says, what you've, you've done is wrong and the price has to be paid, and he pulls out his checkbook and he writes you a check that covers the cost of rebuilding your house and re, re, getting all new possessions, everything you need, and more. And he writes you that check and gives it to you. I myself, out of my own funds, will pay to make everything right, to rebuild your life. Then could that judge turn and say, now that it has been paid, I choose to, to forgive what you've done wrong. That's the only way he could. And that's what happened with God. God could say the price for sin has been paid. Charge it to my account through what Jesus did. So I think about Clint Eastwood in, in Grand Torino. He, he won the victory not by shooting the bad guys, but by taking it all their, their anger, all their shots upon himself. In the same way, Jesus came with the secret plan to, to deal with evil once and for all, not by, by overpowering him with his, his spiritual power and miracles, but by relinquishing his power 
by coming as a servant and giving his life as a ransom for many, allowing all of God's anger to fall upon him as he did it. That was the plan. That was the secret plan he had been working all along. And it comes to us. The, the first question I want you to think about is, is how do you react to the truth that Jesus drank the bitter cup for you? Some might say, well, that was nice of him. That was nice. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Or does it lead you to say, I can't believe you did that for me. I can't believe you took all that upon yourself on my behalf. Isn't the rightful response just to fall on our knees and say, Lord, everything I have is yours. I, I there's nothing I could do to, to, to say in response to that. Were the whole world of nature mine, it would be a tribute far too small to, to respond to what he did. But we trust in him and we give him all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of him because of what he's done for us. Is that not the rightful reaction to what Jesus did on the cross? So I want to go back to what Jesus said to James and John as we think about how to respond, how to react to, to what he did for us. He, he Remember, he said to them, you will drink from my cup. What did he mean? What does it mean to drink from his cup? Instead of the cup of wrath, though, it has been transformed to the cup of forgiveness. We receive his forgiveness as we put our trust in him. We drink from his cup. But in doing that, we own up to the, the junk in our life. We quit pretending that we have it all together. We pr quit pretending we're good enough, that, that we don't deserve um, the punishment ourselves, and we just say, thank you for taking that upon yourself and freeing me of it. It also means we're, we're accepting the deal. Think about it this way. When we drink from the cup, we're receiving God's forgiveness for everything we did, but it also means we're accepting the fact that his, his blood covers the sins of all those who've hurt us. So we're relinquishing the right to, to punish others. We're relinquishing the right to, to, to claim our grievances and what they did to us. Instead, we are saying, as we've received forgiveness, so we forgive. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We drink the cup, and it's all gone. The second thing Jesus said to them is, you will join me in my baptism. That's not referring to just another ritual. We do use baptism as a ritual to, to sim symbolize our entrance into his church. But it, it's talking about immersing ourselves into a new relationship with Christ. We are immersed into him. Not just water. We're immersed into to Christ in being our life. And Galatians 2.20 is the, the greatest description of that. 
where they say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to be immersed into Christ. His life starts to fill our life and makes everything new again. Um, that's why we live by different rules. That's why after James and John had come with their request, Jesus told his followers, it's going to be different for you guys after this. It's not going to be the same. That The greatest in, in my kingdom will not be the one who sets himself above others. Instead, the greatest will be the one who becomes the servant to others, who makes himself even the slave to others. Because just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but give his life as a ransom for many, you're going to follow my example. So when we accept the, the deal, we're immersed into him, we start to live by the rules of his kingdom. And so I want to close with this, this picture because I love this, this picture. I hope you can sort of see the, the gist of it. It's a, it's a steps leading up to a, a, the, the cleft and the rock. But it ends up in the shape of a cross. And so what Jesus did by giving his life, blasts the hole through the mountain that separated us from God. It opens the door and a way to God um, that, that now we follow him. He is the path. He is the way into that new life of his kingdom kingdom living. We declare that Jesus is our king and he begins to do a, a changing everything and how we, how we live, how we treat people. We open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit working within our lives. Um, we open ourselves up to loving others in new ways. Instead of seeking to be served, we try to find ways to serve others. Freely we have received and so we freely give. you ready to drink from the cup? Are you ready to, to be baptized, immersed into Christ, and become like him? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you did for us. Nothing we could do could ever pay back what you did. But we receive your grace anyways. We rejoice in your grace. And we delight in, in becoming like you and learning to show that same grace and love to others. As we have received from you, Lord, help us to, to give away freely to, uh, to, to those around us. Lord, do a work in our hearts even now. We pray this all in the name of the one who came and gave his life, Jesus Christ. Amen.